If today is December 23rd, tomorrow is Christmas Eve, we'll gather here tomorrow at 4 and 5.15, and I hope that all of your shopping and I hope your preparations are done, because if you're not, you're probably in trouble. I have a, a package that's supposed to come in, and it hasn't come in yet, and I'm praying, Lord, please, by tomorrow, let the package come in. Because our family, uh, Deanna's side of the family, my wife, um, is descending today and tomorrow on our little house um, from Washington and Arizona. And I can honestly tell you that I'm excited and I'm exhausted at the same time, getting everything ready. And um, we have tried, and I hope you have tried, in the middle of all these wonderful traditions. I know that some of you are going away to be with family. Some have already left, and some of you might be here visiting family or having family come to you. I hope in the middle of all those good traditions that you'll be able to take time and and reflect and, and again, be reminded of of what is most important and central and and eternally significant about this particular period of time and what we celebrate in the birth of Jesus. Um, That's what these Advent Advent Sundays are about. This is now the fourth Sunday of Advent. And as you may have guessed, um, it's about love today. And I am going to focus our attention on one single statement today found in um, the first epistle to John Chapter 4, verse four, or 19. You don't need to turn there right now. I'll have it on the slide behind me. Um, just to keep it simple and to keep it centered. Uh, but before we get to it, I want to tell you about one of the little quirks I have as a father to my children. I'm pretty sure that at my memorial service or my funeral, my children will get up, um, then hopefully grown, and pass the mic around. And I think one of the things they're going to say is like, do you remember when we used to watch movies and dad in the middle of the movie would hit pause and start talking about God? And I can... <laughs> I can hear one of my other children say, yeah, that was just so irritating that he would do that. Because that is kind of what I've, I, I do, and I'm actually trying to wean myself off of that habit. But we'll be in the middle of the movie, you know, music's playing, the action's going, and all of a sudden I'll just go pause. Do you see that? Like there's, there's a God moment in that, that movie or this analogy to redemption. And I can almost hear the collective sigh of my kids go, oh, not again. Dad's doing it again. Well, for those of us uh, in this room who are, I do do that, by the way, again, trying to cut down. Um, For those of us who who are young at heart, both young and old, here's one of those clips. And um, just so you know, this is an older movie, so I'm not doing a movie spoiler. If you haven't seen Ice Age, then that's entirely on you. It came out years ago. But here's one of those little clips, and just keep your eyes open for redemption. Keep up with me. I want to do her moving. Wow, I wish I could jump like that. Wish granted. Ah! Come on, move faster. Have you noticed the river of lava? Thank you. 
Manny, 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 you okay? Come on, come on, say something. Anything. <laughs> what? What? I can't hear you. You're standing on my trunk. Oh. <gasps> oh, you're okay. Oh, you're okay. Why did you do that? You could have died trying to save me. That's what you do in a herd. You look out for each other. Well, thanks. I don't know about you guys, but we are the weirdest herd. <laughs> I know you want to watch the rest of it. That's a, just a little teaser. Now you're going to have to go and rent it if you haven't seen it. I'm so glad I still have a seven-year-old because I get to watch this stuff, you know, brings out the kid in me. But um, what you may not know, um, if you haven't seen the movie, is um, in that clip, the saber-toothed lion by the name of Diego um, earlier in the movie is part of a, a pack of, of lions that actually wants to kill and eat those three, um, Manny the, the mammoth and Sid the sloth and, and the baby, which is actually kind of a grisly thought for a children's movie. But um, uh, Diego's sole aim in leading these three is to lead them into a trap where they're going to be pounced on by the other lions. And um, this is the central key, pivotal point where the story changes. As you saw, this lion, um, saber-toothed lion who's holding onto the edge of the ice, who's about to die, is, is in essence saved by the one he's trying to kill, um, and at risk of his own life. You see him fall into the, the river of lava, and of course, some miraculous way, he's, you know, uh, comes out of it and lands, and everything is okay. But did you notice um, the lion's response? He's just completely struck. He's like, what, why, did you, why did you do that? You could have died to save me. In the movie, it's the very first time that, that Diego, the lion, experiences love, or what the Bible calls grace. It's really interesting as I you think about the movie in itself, there's, there are basically two ideologies going on. There is, in this pack of lions, there is this desire to kill and consume, and you see how they relate to each other, and they rate, relate to each other with domination. Um, but then you heard Manny talk about, the, the mammoth, talk about what you do in a herd, and um, his answer is, well, that's what you do in a herd. You watch out for each other, which basically means you're willing to sacrifice yourself for the sake of the other. Two completely different groups. And here this lion comes in who's intent on killing, and he experiences grace for the first time. And it's what begins to melt his heart and begin to change this um, murderous uh, lion. So that by the time you get to the end of the movie, Diego um, takes his stand with his three friends and defends them against this pack of lions to his own peril. The old Diego wants to kill and the new Diego wants to defend. In the middle, there's this thing called a change. Such, a, such an important word for all of us, isn't it? When you think about your own life and we think about the world in which we live is, is this idea of change. Most of the people that I know, including myself, want to be people of, of, of change. Um, but yet, Oftentimes, people find themselves uh, frustrated by the fact that they don't change. I had a conversation with a young man earlier this week who was on the edge of hopelessness who shared with me, he said, I, I have tried so many times, and every time I've tried, I've failed. And I feel like I just can't change. And he was kind of in a hopeless state. Um, and I think there are many, perhaps, that can relate to that on an individual level. And then there's a more of a social level. I think we can relate to that, too. I mean... You look at the, the outcome or the aftermath of what took place two Fridays ago that was just terrible. 
And what we expected to happen has happened, and that is that everybody's pointing fingers to try and figure out what do we change to make things better so this never happens again. And some are pointing in the direction of guns and others violent, uh, you know, video gaming and others uh, broken homes. But I think most of us know that all those things are just, at best, contributing factors and not the cause. That really all we can do is change the contributing factors, but, but we can't change where it comes from. That, of course, begs the question, where does it come from? And, and the Bible's answer is just a singular answer, and that is from human sin. Or better, to put it um, in, in, the, in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9, where he said that the human heart is deceitful above all else. You hear that? It is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked or desperately sick, is another translation. Who can understand it? And, and it's that, that that ultimately is the, the cause of all these things with their contributing factors. And we can argue over whether or not it is a contributing factor or not. But, you know, it's difficult to legislate and pass laws to transform this thing in here called the human heart. All you can really do and all society can really do is, is suppress it. I was even thinking this last week, how much money we spend as a society on the suppression of sin. I just think about it with me for a moment. Um, there's going to be this line item in our our, um, federal budget called defense spending. And we are going to cough up billions and billions and billions of dollars um, to, when it all boils down to it, suppress sin, to protect American lives from terrorism or tyranny. When it boils right down to it, it is the suppression of sin. Um, We have this other industry called law enforcement, which men are paid in order to suppress sin, protect the lives of of the people in a community and bring down the bad guys is the suppression of sin. You have locks on your cars, alarms on your cars, locks on your house, alarms on your house. You know, people used to put low jack on their cars. You go to the air, airport and there are the expensive, these expensive um, machines that take long time to get through just so sin can be suppressed. What's in here? As when, when you think about it, you realize, wow, there, we, we commit a lot of money and time, and energy, and industry into the suppression of sin. I went to a Christian university to do graduate work, and at the library door were these censors, because Christians, or people at least who call themselves Christians, would steal the books from the library. They put them there to suppress sin. That's the best that we can do, is suppress it. Can't change it. The good news, of course, is that it can be changed, but not by us. And that's, that's what um, the Christmas season is about. That's what Easter is about. That's what really the center of the Bible is about. It's about the change that God has made possible for us through Jesus Christ. But it's a, it's a change of heart that only he could do, uh, that we can't do. All we can do, as I said, is, is suppress sin. And one of the singular statements that's made in Scripture that really confines or, or describes or defines in, in, a, in a short way how this change happens is found in this text that I uh, alluded to earlier, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. And some of you know it by heart, but it, it, it is uh, both simple and profound at the same time, where we read that we love because he first loved us. Now, as I said, this seems simple, but it is profoundly um, wonderful and packed with the source of change in the, in the human heart. The first two words, we love, basically speaks of an effect upon us, the effect of change. We love. Now, the, 
the word love as defined by the Bible and most importantly modeled by Jesus is basically the idea that someone is willing to lay aside their rights or their interests in view of um, the well-being of another person. That is, you place yourself second so that you can tend to the well-being of someone else who's in first place. That's essentially the love as defined and lived out by Jesus. When he left his throne on high, he came down, wrapped himself in human flesh. He became a servant, a slave, died on the cross for our spiritual and internal well-being. That is the definition of love um, lived out by Jesus. And where that kind of love exists, there is no need for law. Where that kind of love exists, sin begins to evaporate and diminish because sin is the opposite of love. So that where people are genuinely thinking of others first and living that out, you know, the sins that we know of and are prevalent all around us, the sins of adultery and lying and deceit, of, of talking poorly about other people, um, of lust, addictions to drugs and alcohol and pornography, um, those things evaporate when we live in love, which places another person in first place. That's why Jesus could, could say that in one single command, to love the Lord God and to love your neighbor, it's one command in two parts, is the summation of all biblical commands. And in fact, where there is love, there is no need for law. You don't have to put up speed limit signs where people are actually driving in manners or ways that are considerate and safe for other people. You don't need law. You need love. And I think if you were to go around um, Fairfield with a microphone and say, would you like a Fairfield where people are willing to um, put themselves second to care for the interests of those others first? I think most people say, yes, I'd love a Fairfield like that. I'd like a marriage like that. I'd like a family like that where people lived, you know, in love. Um, John Lennon and Paul McCartney got it right, right? All you need is love. Um, but rightly defined, and more importantly, that's actually possible. Most people want to love, but then find themselves failing over and over again because we fundamentally, as sinful people, want to live for ourselves. Well, there is something that generates this love, and that's the second five words in this verse. The first two are the effect, how we hope to live, and a, a world in which sin is evaporating, or at least relationships a life where sin is evaporating. But the cause of it is the second part, because we love because he first loved us. You notice the word because has the word cause in it. The cause of Christian love comes from the realization that God first loved us. And one of the most crucial words in that, those five words, because he first loved us, is the word first that his love for us came prior to anything that we did, either bad or good. In other words, his love came to us when we were unloving. And that is echoed throughout the Bible. And it's part of what makes God's love so astounding and so great and transforming, is that it came first. It took the initiation or the initiative for example, Romans 5, 8, many of us have this memorized too, that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, that's an amazing statement. His love was demonstrated to us while we were still in an unlovely state, Christ died for us. It wasn't when we were good that he died for us, it was while we were still sinful that he died for us. 
Or Ephesians chapter 2 says essentially the same thing. That, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that is, dead to him, alienated from him, separated from him, running our own way, separated from life. That's when he loved us. He loved us first, before. He took the initiative. And Christmas is really about that. It's, it's, it's about God's initiative of love, coming in human flesh and, and bowing down to take care of people who don't deserve it, much as Diego didn't deserve to be saved by the mammoth um, that he was trying to eat. And when we talk about God's love taking the initiative, we're talking about God's love bending low. Bending low to, to, to care for and to serve those who are guilty. Um, we're talking about the God who is almighty um, getting essentially off of his throne and getting down and washing the dirty feet of sinners. Like, my mind just can't even begin to really get that. I can say those words, but actually to, to get my head around that, there's no way that Almighty God, creator of all things, would kneel down and wash the feet of sinners before they were ever good or clean. Or that the author of all life, of all living things, the one uncaused cause of, of everything good, that he would willingly bear upon himself the tyranny of human sin and also the wrath of God so that he could serve our greatest need of the debt we paid or owed for sin and, and death, both physically and spiritually. That is, in more maybe popular language, that God would take the fall for us. He would take the fall for you. That he would take the bullet that we deserved or that he would become the scapegoat that would get the blame, the accusation, and in the end, the punishment. And that, is, that is God's love coming first, and we love, and we transform, we see our lives transformed and changed as a result of that first love, because he first loved us, because he first loved us. Even, you notice the movie, Hollywood get it, gets it right, what transforms the lion's heart is that he's loved first while he's still in kind of an evil state. The, the, the mammoth gives his life first, and then he responds with love. Our love is always a response, an outworking, or an evidence that we really get that God loved us in the situation we were. He came into our existence, came into our evil world, and experienced what we experienced, only was always perfect, and bore it for us. You know, I, I find it fascinating, a bit of a side, that, that there is throughout human, humanity and literature and movies and so forth, there is this gravitational pull towards stories of redemption. Have you noticed that? Some of the most enduring uh, stories throughout the thousands of years are stories of redemption. And I think it's deep down, we as humans, whether we're Christian or not, believe that we need redemption, which is why these stories are so prevalent. And it's ironic that we are attracted to stories of redemption. Meanwhile, the greatest story of redemption we willingly choose to reject. Because this is the story of the Bible. It's a great story of redemption of God taking the fall for mankind while we were still sinners. Or let me, let me put it in the opposite, just maybe to give it a little more clarity, or at least to give some of you who know this stuff a little bit more fullness to it, or feel it a little bit more. Um, many of us can remember back to the dating days, I hope. <laughs> to the grace of God, I never have to return there. Dating days were 
chaotic. Um, and if you're not in a dating place yet, you will be, so you'll understand what I'm saying. But, you know, there's that, there's, there's that initial, you first see the girl, and then you do everything to impress the girl. Um, I remember seeing Deanna Johnson for the first time, um, who would later become my girlfriend and now is my wife. And, um, and I would do certain things to try and win her affection, you know? Um, gussy up my old car. Um, I would dress up a little bit more. I actually wore a collared shirt with a tie three days a week, which if you know me, that's saying something. I don't like wearing ties. Put on my cologne, brush my teeth, carry Tic Tacs in my pocket, comb my hair back in the day. (laughs) I actually wrote poetry to her because I wanted to win her affection. And then we both said I do, and then she got to know the real me. And then she had to learn how to love me. And, and, and truth be told, she has seen me healthy. She's seen me sick. She's seen me um, with good hair, bad hair, and no hair. Um, she has experienced me with bad breath, good breath. She has seen my moments of, of genuine service to her and other moments of selfishness. And yet she loves me. She has learned to love me. And now if I dress up for her or put on a tie, it's not because I want to win her love, but because I want to show her love. That's different. Well, many of us, when we think about God, whether we would articulate it this way or not, and most of us probably would not, is that we try to win the affection of the Lord. Um, it's, it's what often motivates people to superficial change. Well, I, I need to go back to church. And, you know, maybe if I do, then I'll feel like God loves me. Or I will pray or pray more, and I'll feel like God loves me because I, I pray or pray more. Or I'll start reading the Bible um, or memorizing the Bible, and maybe God, I will feel like God loves me more. Or maybe I'll volunteer for a ministry. I will go to the homeless shelter, or I will tutor children, or I will, I will help with the Boy Scouts. And maybe God will, I will feel like he loves me more. And you know, the fact of the matter is that belief is the exact opposite of this verse. And it's the way not to change. To think that in any way, shape, or form, we have to win God's affection reverses the whole logic of the verse. It basically, let me reinterpret it according to what I just said, that God loved us because we first loved him. God doesn't love us because we first loved him and did things to impress him. He sees through all that junk. He he sees right through the heart of the motivation of it. And when we approach him in any way, shape, or form, like somehow we can do things, um, engage in religious activities so as to gain his affection, we've got the whole thing in reverse. We find ourselves ultimately enslaved. And there is no change. The change comes from first recognizing that he loved us before we were lovely. When we were in God, he saw right through our, our pretense, sees through it all. Um, it doesn't make a difference how much goodness we do, how much pastoring we do, or preaching or teaching we do. None of that wins the Lord's affection. Our love is a response to the fact that he loved me in spite of myself, and you in spite of yourself. Spiritually speaking, he, he, he knows your bad breath. He knows your bad attitudes. He knows why you're really doing things. He just wants you to own up to it and say, this, this is a, you've loved me in a very unlovely state. And then, 
the transformation process can begin when we know that he loved us first. He loved us first. That part has, has two dimensions to it that are extremely important. For the transformation to take place and change in our lives, um, one has to do with the humble, honest acknowledgement to the Lord that, you know what, God, I was unlovely when you came to me, and I'm not as good as I think that I am. And I, I come before you as a sinner. And that's not, by the way, um, something for just people who come to faith to go through. But there's something for those of us who are genuine children of God who trust in Christ to each day acknowledge that apart from Christ, I, I am fundamentally unworthy of him and worthy of his love. Now, you might say to me, well, yeah, but God sees us now through the lens of Jesus' righteousness. Yeah, that's true. You know what? But that comes from him, not from us. That comes from his love because he loved us first. And to recognize apart from him, I, I still, as far as I may have come in my Christian life, am still unworthy of his love in and of myself. That is part of the journey and part of the transformation. And until you come to that place where you're not blaming anybody else for your issues, you're not justifying or making excuses for how you know, messed up your heart is, just to come before him and say, in humble acknowledgement, I, I, I am unworthy. I, I think Diego felt that in that moment where he realized a guy saved him and he was unworthy of it. But it's then that, 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 that there's um, a change that begins to take place in that humble acknowledgement. But connected with that is this also this sense of, of faith that God's love and his grace are real. They're real. That there really was a man who was born in Bethlehem. There was a man who lived his life in a little place called Israel, who lived a perfect life on our behalf who died an actual death where blood actually came out, where judgment was finally and physically and spiritually passed, and who physically and really came to life so that atonement is real, redemption is real, forgiveness is real. The combination of those two things, of the humble acknowledgement of, I am, I am unworthy of your love, and yet at the same time I trust that your grace has overcome my unworthiness, creates that sense of, of change. And that's where it begins, and that's how it continues. Or let me put it in a simple statement, that when God's grace overwhelms our sense of unworthiness by faith and knowledge, our hearts change. Say that one more time. This most important statement of this little message the grace of God, when the grace of God overwhelms our sense of unworthiness by knowing and trusting, then life changes. And we do the first part of the verse. We begin to love, love God and to love others. That's, that's quite simply put how transformation takes place. Now, and I know some of you are going to think, well, Dan, couldn't you make it a little more complex than that? You made it way too simple. Or... It just sounds a little cliche. doesn't really work like that. And I think one of the reasons, my opinion here, that we have such an anemic experience of God's grace and love, oftentimes in our culture, in our time, 
is because we have been so glutted by information, especially novel information, that we can know a little bit about a lot of things. You know? Go on your, your internet browser and click on Wikipedia, and you can find anything about anything you can possibly find that's out there, inundated, completely saturated with knowledge. There's a lot of people who know a little about a lot of things rather than to know deeply the few things that are really important. Namely, the most important is God's love that has come to us first in Christ Jesus. There's, in my estimation, no more important truth into which we should sink our thoughts, our meditations, and our prayers than that very truth. And as we do, we find that it it changes us. And most people can't accept that it's as simple as that. That is, I think sometimes we take, let's just call it a Wikipedia approach to the truth about God's love in Christ, the coming for sinners. Wikipedia articles, you know, not to overinflate Wikipedia, don't ever cite them on any kind of uh, academic papers. That's not real research. But, you know, it's good for some stuff. You go on and find out about armadillos, and you can click on armadillos in, in, in uh, Wikipedia, and you can go read the article and go, oh, okay, I understand about armadillos. And we can easily take that approach to the love of Christ. Oh, Wikipedia approach to the love of Jesus. Okay, died on a cross for my sin, blah, 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 sinner. Okay, next. It's no wonder that people's hearts are often left unchanged by that because the Wikipedia approach doesn't work. I think it's better to think of that truth of God's love for us in Christ as a, as a painting on a wall in a gallery. Have you ever gone to an art gallery and just stood in front of one single painting completely captivated by its beauty where you can't just look at it once, but you have to stare at it? And as you stare at it, you see things you didn't see before. Um, textures and light and contrast and beauty and you start to see themes and you start to see the, the beauty of the image and, and pretty soon you just you can't get enough of the painting and you've stood there for a long time just beholding something of vast significance. That's, that's the love of God in Christ. There's is t- to be captivated by it and to n- not remove our gaze from it but to continue to see the profound and measureless and unsearchable beauty of all that God, the creator of all things, has done to take the fall for us. And I have never found an end to that. And I, there's never a time where, well, I shouldn't say it, that would be untrue. There are times where in my life I come to that painting, the truth of God's redeeming love in Jesus that came at Christmas, and my heart falls to its knees in humble joy, saying things like uh, Charles Wesley, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The minute that we start thinking that there's not more is the minute your heart dries up and you have no more passion. That is, my friends, my, my, my family, that is the fountain out of which we live and drink, not at the beginning of the Christian life, but throughout the entirety of the Christian life, the bread and the butter, what we nourish our souls on, what we find our security, our strength, our joy, our hope, our peace, which are the other days of Advent, all coming from this one simple thing that God loved us first. Say simple, I say, no, it's profoundly deep if you take the time to look at it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It has worked itself out in history over and over and over again. It actually works. 
life of Zacchaeus and life of Paul, life of Peter, life of the slave trader, John Newton, changed because grace came in and realized, I'm wretched, but you've loved me, and you've done all that for me. And there are many sitting in this room who have experienced that to some level, that beginning of the change of knowing a gracious love that has then begun to melt and transform the heart. I'd, I'd be willing to guess there are others who have been in this church for a long time, or maybe you've gone to another church and you're just coming to this church. And Christianity for you and this whole Jesus thing is, is really, a, it's okay, but it doesn't do anything for you. If you were to be brutally honest with yourself and the Lord, it's like, I really could take it or leave it. I could not show up to church or for six months a year, and it really wouldn't make a difference in my life. I don't want to, I'm not going to judge you for that, but I do want to say that as a reflection of your heart. And perhaps, just perhaps, that inner change has never really taken shape or place in your life. When in one single moment you come to recognize at some level that I am so unworthy to be loved, and yet you valued me when I was unworthy. And your heart falls to its knees in humble joy, recognizing that you took the fall for me. You didn't have to, but you did. That is something that causes the change. It's called the new birth, the new life, that the Spirit of God does in the heart. And if it hasn't happened, then it's something you need to pray and seek for um, because it is the most wonderful turnaround in life um, and sends you on a new journey. And if, if someone is here that has never really heard all this Jesus stuff, wants to know more, I recognize there are some who come in at Christmas time who don't know this stuff very much. We'd love to talk with you more about it. We don't have a cram it down your throat, throat approach here at Parkway. We just want to tell you about it and let the Spirit do his work. But we'd be more than happy and available to talk with you. John, who does the piano over here, a worship pastor, or Dan or myself, or um, maybe even the person next to you. Um, because that's where change comes from. Um, our society can at best change the, um, the factors that contribute to the problem, but can't change the heart. But I'll tell you one thing that can change the heart is this simple sentence right here. We love, that's the change, because we've come to the realization that he first graciously loved us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for, more importantly, your love that did come down for us. And, and I stand with all those here as, as someone who is intrinsically unworthy of your love. And yet, you sought me out. You sought out those who are in this church building. And you have initiated your plan of love and have taken upon yourself our sin. We're just grateful. And we bless you. We thank you. And we praise you for your vast goodness. And I pray that you would bring change to each and every one of our lives. In the name of Jesus who gave himself for us. Amen. Is greater far than tongue or pain. Never tell, it goes beyond.